Thank everybody for coming out for Bible study, braving the, uh, braving the elements out there. Some nasty weather out there. Thankful my wife, my wife came. Uh, she, knew how, she knew who was teaching. She still, still decided to attend, so I'm grateful for that. And uh, we're going to, let's, let's go before the Lord in prayer. And uh, let's uh, remember to keep our pastor and his family and, the, and those that are traveling with him. Uh, they're at a conference this week. So keep them for safe travel and also that God will bless that conference and that they would receive God is pouring out into all those ministers that are there. It's important that, that, that our leaders go to things like that. So let's pray over our Bible study tonight. Lord, we thank you for your word. I thank you, God, for your plan of salvation. I pray, God, that you would anoint this Bible study, God. I pray that you would direct every word. Help us, Lord, to put aside all our cares of the world, anything that might try to choke out the word, help us to open up our hearts to it right now, that we might receive it with gladness and let it be implanted in our hearts. And I pray, God, that this word would just grow in us and, and, and change us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I'm, I'm pretty excited to preach, or teach tonight. Try not to preach. I'm going to try to teach. But as I was finished putting finishing touches on this, I don't, know, I don't know that I've ever felt the Holy Ghost moving as much as I have in anything I've ever put together to teach anywhere. So I'm excited about this. <clears throat> Anybody know, where did, what, what was Jesus' first miracle? Where did that happen? And it was at a wedding. Right? We just had a wedding. I heard we just had a wedding. And uh, uh, I don't think it was any coincidence that that Jesus' first miracle happened at a wedding, and in particular, it happened at a, at a Galilean wedding. And I, I hope to show tonight, this is something I've been wanting to study out for a long time, and so I ran across some stuff lately, and it really pressed me to dig into this. And I want to show, show the significant meaning uh, that a, a Galilean wedding holds as a symbol for the good news of the gospel, of the prophetic nature, why Jesus used those references so often. Jesus was a Galilean, and his disciples were all Galileans. And because of this, Jesus used cultural references that they would easily understand to explain, explain principles he was trying to teach them. Right? They wouldn't, if he just said, you know, when, you get your, when you're browsing on the Internet or when you're texting your friends, like they wouldn't have understood what he was talking about. Right? And so you use, when you're teaching, generally you try to teach things in ways that people can understand. And, and I think that's really important that we study Scripture contextually. I love studying things contextually. I want to know who the writer was, who they were writing to, when they were writing, what was going on, what was the culture like. It's important because it'll help us um, understand what, what that real message It'll give us a deeper understanding of what the Scriptures are telling us. And so when we understand things about that time and culture which Jesus conducted his earthly ministry, it's going to help us to understand the point he was trying to make it. And, and unfortunately, much about that culture, right, 2,000 years ago, it's been forgotten or, or just lost over, over, over the years. But if we'll dig in and understand that, I, I think it'll give us a deep meaning. And I, I, was, I was studying through, it was, I was amazed how often Jesus used references associated with a wedding. And again, he was referring to a Galilean wedding in his teaching. Um, the Galilean wedding started well before the wedding ceremony. The first thing that was happened was a betrothal. 
it would be announced, they would announce this to the whole village and everybody would get all excited. Like this was the big deal that happened. And, and they would all go out to the city gate to witness this event. And uh, it happened at the city gate because that's where all legal transactions took place. And elders would observe to make sure everything was followed according to the law. And there were witnesses for the purpose of keeping everybody accountable. You couldn't go back and say, well, I didn't agree to that. Right? You couldn't come back later and say, well, that wasn't part of the deal. Everybody in town knew it, what was part of the deal. And so the, the first thing that was happened in that betrothal was that a written covenant that, that described the terms of the agreement uh, for the wedding, that was read in front of those witnesses. And like I said, everybody would know what this agreement was. And that reminded me of an Old Testament covenant event. This is... Uh, Joshua 24, verses 14 through 22. I got, if you haven't heard me teach before, I use a lot of scripture, and if you don't like it, take that up with the writer. Uh, <clears throat> but it says, now, therefore, fear the Lord. This is Joshua. They're, right? This is, the, the, they're coming into the land that God has promised them. And he says, now, therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it, is, if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers that served, which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Right? We're familiar with that scripture. The people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage who did those great signs in our sight <clears throat> and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the people, including the Amorites who dwelt in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. I could have shortened this, but... You see, there's terms to this agreement. And Joshua, but Joshua said to the people, you cannot serve the Lord for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done you good. And the people said to Joshua, Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. So Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. So there was a, it just reminded me of this wedding. I, I thought that sort of painted that same picture. There, there's terms to this covenant agreement between the people and God, and there's witnesses they were witnesses against themselves, according to Joshua. But a choice was made by those people that day to serve God or to serve someone else. There were promises made and warnings of what would happen if the covenant was broken. And there were witnesses to it all. In the same way, Jesus has made a covenant with his believers. Hebrews 10, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart 
in full assurance of faith. I like that. In full assurance. There's a guarantee here. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. So you, so you hear there, there, there's some terms to this agreement. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There's a covenant here. There, there's terms to the agreement. And there's consequences for violating the covenant. It goes on in, in verse 35. It says, Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Now I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but this, this was very similar to this Galilean wedding. The betrothal happened way before the wedding, and there was things that needed to be done in between. And I just find there's a similarity here. We see the same conflict. Concept: A covenant entered into with witnesses, and there's a promise made to us, but also expectations for us until the fulfillment of that promise occurs. <clears throat> Jump over to Hebrews 12. It says, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of what? Witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The writer here is referring to the, he, if you read the chapter before, we've just gone through all the heroes of faith, right? That's what we call them, the heroes of faith. I know I've heard this taught before, and I'm not trying to disagree with it, but I'm not so sure they're witnesses cheering us on, but I think they're witnesses of the covenant that we have with God and whether we're holding up our end to it. Now, the next thing in the Galilean wedding was they, they, would, they would read this uh, agreement, and the next thing would happen, it was an exchange of gifts. And the most extravagant gifts were given to the bride. And in contrast to the common belief and in contrast to a lot of the other cultures around them, the gifts given to the father of the bride, the, the dowry, right? <clears throat> that wasn't to purchase the bride as if she was property. That was an insurance policy to take care of her in case something happened to the groom. It was a guarantee of her safety and provision. It was an assurance 
that, uh, that the promises made to her would be fulfilled. And what was the price paid for us? It was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. What a, what a Savior. And can anyone testify that he lavishes us with extravagant gifts? I'm, I'm trying not to get emotional, but this just, this just really spe- spoke to me. <clears throat> the next thing that happened in the Galilean betrothal, and we're still in the betrothal. Right? This is the betrothal ceremony. The bridegroom would pour wine into the, uh, a ceremonial cup, that would, and he would offer it to his bride-to-be. And it was called the cup of joy. And he'd carefully, he'd, he'd, he'd fearfully and reverently hand this, with both hands, hand this wine over to his bride. And at this point, the bride was in full control of her destiny. She, she could choose to accept it, Or she could reject it just by choosing to drink from the cup or refusing it. This was also in in contrast to other typical wedding customs of the time. Um, The betrothal was not complete until the bride drank from that cup of wine. And then the groom would also take and drink from the cup, which solidified a new covenant, a new agreement between them. See, in the other cultures, the bride didn't have a choice. But, but the bride in this wedding had every bit of choice whether she wanted to participate. And, and so then the groom, after he, he would get the cup back and he would drink from it and he would loudly and publicly say for everybody to hear, you are now consecrated to me by the laws of Moses and I will not drink of this cup again until I drink it anew with you in my father's house. Does that sound familiar? Anybody heard something like that before? Matthew 26, 26 uh, through 29. And as they were eating, this is the last supper. Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it and gave to the disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for, the, for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day that when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. See, at this Last Supper, this wasn't something unfamiliar to the disciples. They would have totally recognized this, this phrase from, from the wedding tradition, either their own wedding or they would have witnessed somebody else probably several times. This was totally recognizable to them, totally understand. They, they, they would have recognized it quickly. And he said, I will not drink of this until I drink anew with you in my father's kingdom. They would have clearly understood that the reference was to a betrothal, that it was a covenant bet- promise between a, a, a bridegroom and his bride. It was a promise of a betrothal. And Jesus also said that this is the new covenant. It's important to remember that at the Last Supper, what were they celebrating? The Passover, right? And that was in accordance with the law of Moses. If, if you were here on Sunday morning in the Connect classes, then you know we talked about the importance of the Passover celebration. Right? That was instituted to remember how the blood of the Lamb had protected the Israelites from the wrath of God. It was a reminder of the covenant that they had with God and how he had fulfilled his promise if they were obedient to the commandment. Now Jesus was instituting a new covenant with his blood, the blood of the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. I thought I'd get an amen there. 
The breaking of bread and the drinking of wine, those acts signified a new covenant, a new union between a man and his bride to be, or in this case, Jesus Christ and his church. Drinking the cup at the Last Supper was equivalent to, to the sealing of the covenant at the Galilean betrothal ceremony. You all see that? <clears throat> Later in the Gospels, when Jesus spoke prophetically of things to come, the disciples asked when these things would take place. They didn't ask why. They understood that there was a new union between God and man. They understood the why. They just needed to know. They wanted to know when. They, they understood that there, the, the power of the promise in the betrothal covenant. And at the end of the betrothal began a time of preparation. Preparation for the wedding. The bride and the bridegroom uh, were technically united as one. They were recognized as, as, as a single unit, as a married couple, if you were. But the groom had to leave his bride. And they had to live apart until the day of the wedding. Their marriage had not been completed or, or consummated. The bridegroom would now get to work. He had to go get materials. And they usually were fairly expensive to build a new room onto his father's house that they could go live in. And before his crucifixion, Jesus warned his disciples that he would need to leave them. And he said to them, I go to prepare a place for you and I will come again. And receive you into myself. In my father's house, John 14, 2 and 3, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. But unlike the earthly wedding custom, Jesus was speaking about a heavenly realm where only those who have agreed to be in union with him get to go. Jesus said definitively that he was coming back to take his church back where he has been. He also said that there was only one way to get there. Because John 14, 4 through 6, he said, And where I go, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? But what did Jesus say to him, Brother Bruce? I am the way. I'm the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one bridegroom that can bring us to the Father's house in heaven. Amen? There's no other name under heaven but when which we must be saved. Christ said that when he comes back, there will be those living on earth that will not taste death. Matthew 16 and 28, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. In the Galilean wedding tradition, until the time when the groom returned, there was much work he had to do. They had to do a lot of work. And while the groom left to go prepare a place for them, the bride also had a lot of work to do. It wasn't all the, up to the groom to get everything ready. The bride needed to prepare for the hour when her groom would return for her. Because he said he was coming back, right? I'm going to leave it. I'm going to come back. She needed to be ready. And over, the and over the next period, it was about a year, the bride would need to get her dress put together for the wedding. She and the bridesmaids would either weave or they'd have to go purchase fabric for the dress. And that could take months and great expense for them to, to, to acquire that. 
And it had to be done with great care because she wanted to present herself clean and spotless, right? You don't want to show up to your wedding. I've never been a, a bride, but I don't think too many, all the married ladies in here probably didn't want to show up to their wedding day with spots all over their dress, right? You didn't want coffee stains and ketchup, you know, like you probably kept that thing uh, wrapped up in plastic, right? You didn't want any spots. And listen to the Apostle Paul's instructions for married couples uh, in Ephesians 5. He said in verse 25, it says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and his, of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Now, those are great instructions for marital relationship. But Paul said he was speaking about Christ and his church. It's instructions for all of us who want to be part of the bride. And the bride would need to remain, she had to stay vigilant and pure. She had to be watchful. No matter how long it took, she had to wait. She had to be ready. She didn't just sit and wait. As a matter of fact, the, the word uh, that they talked about transferred is that she had to occupy until her groom returned. It sounds like you're being a little busy. You're not just sitting around with your feet up on the desk going, well, you know, someday. First Pe Peter closed his first epistle to the church like this. First Peter 5, uh, starting in verse 5, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in, in what? Due time. Due season. Casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. That's, he's got to be our focus, the focus of our care. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks, around, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He'd love to disrupt this wedding plan for you, for me. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world, but may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you've suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. We're not called it's all right. We're not called to sit and wait. This is not a passive deal. We're called to purify ourselves and get ourselves ready. I'm sorry, I'm getting emotional because as I was writing this I kept thinking, am I really doing enough to get myself ready? Do we think about that anymore? There's a waiting period, and there might be some tough times to endure. Paul said we have need of what? Endurance. It's not time for cruise control. We're not going to coast all the way there. We, we have to endure in the faith until the bridegroom returns for his bride, until Jesus returns for his church. Amen? <clears throat> the Holy Ghost. 
I'm going to try to keep, to keep it together. But the waiting period, like I said, took, typically took it about a year. But the bride nor the groom, they didn't know exactly the, the precise day or hour that the wedding would take place. Only the father of the groom knew when the wedding would take place. That same father who also read the conditions of their covenant at the betrothal ceremony. And he was also the one who provided the payment for the bride. It was the father who provided that security promise for the bride. And I'm struck tonight because that right now in Alexandria, our pastor and his family are because of the times, like I said, and the theme, you know what it was this year? Assurance. We have an assurance. Uh, we have an assurance. It's been paid. The price has been paid. His side, his, his promise is assured. His side of the covenant guaranteed. But is our side of the covenant guaranteed? That's up to each one of us. Jesus told his disciples that no one knows the day or the hour but the Father. Matthew 24 and 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. I want to point out that does not provide evidence of two separate persons of God with one of them not knowing something the other was doing. Right? That's foolish. It's a clear reference to the Galilean wedding tradition. And his disciples would have known that. <laughs> the bride had to, get her, had to get ready every day for her wedding. Because she didn't know. Is it today? She had to get ready every single day. All of you married ladies. <laughs> Sister Bishop says, whew, that's a lot of work. It was a lot of work. That's the point. She had to put on her wedding garment every day. And she would wait every night. She would sleep in her wedding dress every night waiting for her groom to show up. Because she didn't know. Although Jesus said that no one knows the exact time of his return, he also said that based on prophecy, we could know the season of his return had arrived. And that's why it's important we keep studying prophecy and scripture. I'm grateful for people like Brother Ritzy studying prophecy and bringing that to us. Brother Baxter looking at the signs of the seasons, the times. Is that, is that indicating the season we're in? We have to keep studying that prophecy in Scripture. Studies, some folks did some uh, research, a research group did some studies, and they showed that the modern church hardly ever teaches or preaches about biblical prophecy anymore, even though there's a large percentage of Scripture devoted to prophecy. That seems a little funny to me. and Because when, when you take prophecy out, you slowly start taking out the return of Jesus. And when you take that out, you've taken the good news of the gospel out of Scripture. You're ignoring, because you're ignoring the prophecy. The world is slowly forgetting why prophecy exists. It's there so that God can prove that he is God and that his word is truth. Is that all right, is that all right Brother Kevin? Am I, am I on there? That's the prophecy guy. There's a trend in modern Christianity where talking about Christ's return has decreased over time. And I wonder, is that the great falling away that scripture warned us about? I don't know, but clearly the focus has slowly shifted toward what we want God to do for us in this life rather than exhorting us to make ourselves ready for his return by abiding in the covenant we have with him. That's taught less and less statistically. Hmm. Jesus spoke about returning like a thief in the night. Now, his disciples would have understood that idiom because... Uh, the groom in the Galilean wedding 
would return in the middle of the night. Matthew 24, 37 through 44 says, But as the, son, the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will, be the, so also will the coming of, man, of the Son of Man be. The two men will be in the field. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, and the other left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed this house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Can't get lazy in this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. And they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on a breastplate, the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you were drunk or sleeping, when the groom showed up, you were going to miss it. Revelation 16 and 15, Behold, I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. We got to be ready. We can't be asleep. We got to be ready, amen? We got to be ready. Coming in the dark, that's why they needed their lamps full of oil. And they needed them lit so that they could find their way through the dark. You imagine trying to go through a dark town and you don't have any light? They needed to have their oils lit so that it would not be like a thief in the night. Because they were dressed and ready, not taken by surprise and unprepared. The bride would live a pure life and sleep in her wedding dress. Her bridesmaids were dressed in their white linen garments, and they were ready to help her when the moment arrived. The wedding was held at night for a reason. Only those who have an active part in the wedding were ready and excited for it. Are we excited for it anymore? Are we excited for it? This, we, this ought to be the most exciting thing to us. Because those that weren't involved were asleep and they had no part. I don't know anybody else. I want a part. I want a part in the wedding. Whew. Is this all right? Jesus used a parable to show that even those who think they are prepared could be left in the dark. And the parable is familiar to us. It's the ten bridesmaids or the five foolish and five wise virgins. Matthew 25. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But the, while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. Is this coming together for you? And at midnight, a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. 
Then all those virgins, virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, no, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. Then while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, one of the most scariest verses in the Bible to me, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. All those virgins had accepted the betrothal covenant. All right? They had... They had heard the agreement. They had made the, the agreement and the commitment. They'd been doing something to get ready. They had their garments on. All 10 of them jumped up at the midnight cry, and they trimmed their wicks, but only five had enough oil in their lamps to, go, to proceed. Oil in Scripture we know is symbolic for the Holy Spirit. Those foolish virgins were believers. They were religious. They looked the same as the wise virgins. You, if you walked in the room, you couldn't tell which one was which. Right? They, they had only gone through the motions, though. They had garments and lamps, and they were waiting, but only those that had enough oil made it to the wedding. The oil was, it was costly. It, was expen- it costs you something to get oil in your lamp. And it's easy to hide not having it. You can get your garment on and look real good, but have no oil. It's easy to pretend you've got a full lamp. Nobody can see. And they couldn't get there on someone else's oil, and neither will you. Neither will I. I can't get there on Jared's oil. And it's not just enough to have some oil. Your lamp must be full. You might have the Holy Ghost, but I ask you, are you full? We need to keep filling up. It's not one time, right? The season of his return is here. It's no time to get lazy or careless in our worship. We need to keep filling up with the Holy Ghost, amen? And how do we do that? Repentance, exercising our faith, spiritual disciplines like prayer, fasting, praise, thanksgiving, worship. How about giving? We need to continually search the scriptures and study the word of God. We should be desperately seeking more of him in our lives, not just coasting along with what we already have. We need to keep killing the flesh so that we can have more of the spirit. I wrote this as a we. I'll talk about me. When I first came to Jesus, my vessel was full of junk and dirt and gunk. And I pulled a little bit of it out, and he filled the void. He filled me with the Holy Ghost as much as I could be filled. But guess what? I found more dirt, and I keep finding more junk, and I keep pouring it out. And you know what he does? He keeps pouring more in, and we need to keep doing that. I'm pleading with somebody. I'm trying not to preach, but I'm pleading with somebody. We got to keep killing the flesh. We have to keep getting the dirt and junk out of our vessels so that we can be full of only the Spirit. We want to be full of only the Spirit when He comes back. You can't get there on flesh. Throughout the Scripture, those that were saved from the wrath of God were only a remnant. Am I I right, Brother Bruce? Remnants. All throughout the Old Testament. Not everybody was saved. For example, 
not all those who returned from Babylonian captivity, out of all those that got everybody got captured and taken away, but only a remnant made their way back. And they were the zealous ones. They were the ones that were zealous for God. They were the religious zealots. I know it's not popular to say this today, but everybody's not going to make it. Only the remnant. The rest are going to be asleep or unprepared. And I don't know about anybody else, but I want to be awake and I want to be ready. I don't want to be woke, but I do want to be awake. In that Galilean wedding, there would, be a, there would come a time when the bridegroom's father come to him in the middle of the night, wake up, go get your bride. And the son would jump up to his feet, and he, I almost went and wanted to get the one out of pastor's office, but he's not here for me to ask him permission. But he'd grab a shofar, a trumpet, right, a ram's horn trumpet, and he'd let out this big blast to let everybody know the time's come. It's happening right now. Right? It would wake up everybody in the village, including the bride and her family. Matthew 24, 30 through 31. Uh, the, then the, sign of, the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Does this sound... Like the wedding? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption... And this mortal has put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? Amen. Anybody excited about this? Are you awake? I put you all to sleep. The trumpet might start blasting. The groom and his groomsmen, they kind of wind their way through the town blasting the trumpet to wake up the bride, and they had to get the invited guests woke up. Only those that were prepared would be able to quickly rise and join that procession. I don't know, and I haven't studied this out, but I wonder if those might be the dead in Christ. That might represent the dead in Christ. You, they died, and here's the trumpet. They're ready. They died ready. Right? I'm, I, I, you might not come back before you die, but I want to die ready. Then they get to the bride's house, and out comes the bride. She's in her spotless wedding dress, surrounded by her bridesmaids. I'm just picturing this in my head. What a, what a beautiful thing. How beautiful is that? And the bride and groom, after waiting for so long, they're going to be reuni reunited forever. What a moment. Can you imagine? Been separated, you know, you, got, you get betrothed, and you're separated, just doing all this work, and now... How much more when Jesus comes back for his church? And the bride <clears throat> would next be seated on, on this wedding litter. It was called an apirion. You got that picture, Brother Kevin? She was lifted in the air. 
and carried to the bridegroom's father's house. And the ancient Galileans actually referred to this as flying to the father. Does this give anybody else goosebumps? This gave me goosebumps. She flew to her father. The word rapture is nowhere in scripture, but the term is used to refer to the moment that believers are caught up in the air with the returning Messiah. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Hmm. After the bride is flown to the father's house, the wedding feast begins with all those who were prepared and heard the call in the dark of night. Are you prepared? You're going to hear the call? Jesus revealed that those who were caught up with uh, him and will part uh, those who were caught up with and will partake in with him and will partake in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19, 7, John wrote, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And what? His wife has made herself ready. Heaven's going to rejoice. The bride is not only united with Christ for eternity, but saved from the wrath that's to come in the last days. Jesus warned that many will not accept his offer to attend the wedding feast. How sad is that? Instead, they're going to choose to be separated from him for eternity. There are... There are those that will be left behind. The door will be shut, and no one's going to be able to open it, right? It's just like Noah's Ark. That door, God shut that door, and no one could open it, not even Noah. I've always thought about this, how awful that was. People were, you know, when it got to here, it probably got real real for them. Clawing on the outside, let us in, let us in. Should have believed you. I don't want to be on the outside. I won't be on. The, I plan on being on the inside. If you're in, you're in, and if you're out, you're out. I've gone kind of quick, but Hebrews 12, verse 25 says, "See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape." If we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he is promised, saying, yet once more, I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. I I talked about how the churches don't, I'm not talking our church, I'm just saying modern church doesn't talk much about prophecy anymore. And what that's leading to is that fewer and fewer people are looking towards the return of Jesus. 
right? You hear it. You hear it in the songs. What is God going to do for me today? What's it, I'm going to live my best life now. That's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is a wedding proposal. It's more important than ever that we make sure we're ready. I put this together hoping somebody maybe would move them like it moved me. I want to be ready. It takes work. It's not, it's not, it's not take your feet off the pedals and coast like you were when you were a kid on your bike. You got to pedal. You got to work. You got to put something into it. And don't, you can't, there's no excuse. You can't say, I didn't know. It's, it's right here. It's in, it's in the word of God. You, you, you signed up for this. You agreed to this. Just like at the betrothal ceremony. We all agreed to this. And there's a great cloud of witnesses saying, come on. I, I do think they're cheering for us, but I think they're there to say, where's your faith? Are you holding up your end? We, we've got to be ready. We've got to make sure we're ready. And, and we also need to be telling everybody that we can this good news of the gospel. We, we have to tell the world about the coming promise of a wedding supper, and we have to warn them about the peril they face if they choose to reject this covenant proposal, this betrothal that Jesus offers. So I'm going to close with this. And I ask everybody in the sound of my voice and online, if you have not already, will you accept the cup? You accept the cup that Jesus is offering. And maybe you've already accepted the cup. So I ask, are you making yourself ready and staying awake? Are you eagerly awaiting for the return of the bridegroom? Are you ready to go to the marriage supper of the Lamb? Are you ready tonight? Got your wedding garment on? Got your oil? Got your lamp filled with oil? Let's pray, Lord. Thank you for this word, God. I pray this word just washes over us right now, God. I pray that it moves on our hearts, God. Help us, Lord. Help me, God. God, I want to be ready. I want to be ready. I want to present spotless, blameless before you, God. Lord, give us correction. Help us, Lord, to love your correction. I pray, God, that you would give but conviction in our hearts, God, to do, to lead us, that you would lead us in the paths of righteousness. We cannot lead ourselves. Only you can lead us, God. I pray we would hear your call tonight. I pray we would look at the signs of the seasons, the signs of the times that are upon us. That we would stop coasting if we're coasting. That we would chase after this with an eagerness, with a, with a fervor that you have, that you have called for. I pray, God, that, that we would return to, to looking forward to your return and not just asking you for stuff for us, for, to, for provision for today. You've already given and guaranteed. We have full assurance. I pray, God, that somebody would have that assurance tonight, that we would have faith to believe and trust in your promise. Help us, Lord, to keep our side of the covenant agreement. I know it's Wednesday night, but I hope it's all right. We pray a little while.
feel the Holy Ghost. If we can't spend a few minutes in prayer, I don't know if we're getting ready. It's time to plow up the fallow ground, the fallow ground of our hearts. That's so the word can be implanted. The seed can be implanted in our hearts. God, let us not take this lightly. I pray that nobody takes this word lightly. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Thank you all. Continue to pray. Thank you all for coming tonight. I don't know if anybody else feels the Holy Ghost. If you need to leave, go ahead and leave. If you want to stay and pray, stay and pray. I think it's appropriate. God bless you.